Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 82. And if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 461 in those Black Pew Bibles. And as I said earlier, if you don't own a Bible, I would be more than happy to order a new box because we keep missing Bibles because you all are taking them home and reading God's Word. Again, if you don't own a Bible, if you already have 20 Bibles in your house and you just like these black ones, please buy them with your own money. But if you're a guest, I'd love to give to you lots of treasure, treasure of God's word that you can take home and take that as our gift to you. Psalm 82 is the next sermon in our sermon series in book three of the Psalms. And for my intro to this message, I would like to let you know that this passage is debated. It's, it's debated because it's strange. It's abstract. And on the surface, it may seem, as I suggest to you what it's saying, that you will be tempted to think, this, this is not helpful. Uh, I, I have other things going on in my life, and I don't know why we would want to give our time and attention to really sink our teeth into Psalm 82. So that's been the dilemma for me all week. I believe that this psalm, in summary, is teaching us that there is a God who sits on the throne of heaven, and Psalm 82 is saying that he is not just going to judge the humans on the earth, but that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and in Psalm 82, he judges heaven, which is why it's a bit abstract and strange. For those of you that are familiar with the Bible, you should have some concept of this idea, and I'll hopefully tease that out, but to help land the plane as why this might matter, I think that it's useful for you to realize that Psalm 82, in terms of a metaphor and as a, as a poetic picture, is depicting for us a heavenly courtroom scene. So this is important for you as we read this psalm and as we unpack what it means. So heavenly courtroom scene is what we're going to see in Psalm 82, and to help you understand the significance of it for your life, for your understanding of the world, for your obedience as a Christian, for you if you're here today and you're not a Christian, why this matters to you today. I would like to compare and contrast a courtroom scene that happened in 2015 about the well-known sex abuser Larry Nasser and the words of one of his victims and accusers, Rachel Denhollander. I've been reading various books in, in my practice, and this year, for uh, whatever reason, I've read two different books that talk about this case. So it's been on my mind, and I felt like it would be useful for today's sermon to again help you land the plane. Think of it as a a illustration that I will begin and thread through the entire sermon as we compare and contrast a heavenly courtroom scene and an earthly one. And here's the setup in the earthly courtroom scene. Rachel Denhollander, a woman who was abused sexually by Larry Nasser gave her testimony, and I'll give more details about this in a minute, but during that testimony, here's the important question she asks. How much is a young little girl worth? How much is a young little girl worth? We want to answer that question using Psalm 82. Let's read it now. A Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Amen. I want to take this psalm into three parts, and I want you to just see the setting in verse 1, and it will make this point. There is a judge reigning in the heavens. Verse 1, point 1. There is a judge reigning, ruling righteously in the heavens. Verse 1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. I've already told you, I think this is a setting of a heavenly courtroom scene, and so you should be picturing something very similar to what you've read if you've read the book of Job, Job 1 and 2. God, supreme ruler over all of the heavenly beings. I don't know any Christian that I've ever talked to that denies the reality of angels and demons. So if this idea is tripping you up to think, who are these lowercase g gods? I think the simplest way to explain it is angelic beings. Either ones that are hosts of heaven that are obeying God or fallen angels. God has taken his, literally in Hebrew, the word in the verb of verse one, line one, is his stand. In the council of, and then the word is El, E-L. So if you're reading this in Hebrew, and many of you may not care about this, but it's important in terms of making sense of some of the difficulties. The word God is Elohim, and then its short form is El. So if you were to read this in Hebrew, very literally, you would say Elohim, that is God, has taken his stand in the assembly of El. That's line one. In the midst of the Elohim, There it is again. He holds judgment. And so if you're confused, reading in English or in Hebrew, big G God, lowercase g gods, my suggestion for settling their confusion is just to realize that there is a spiritual heavenly reality that's in both Old and New Testaments. There is only one God. Embassy Church, we believe, as the first thing in our statement of faith, there is one singular God who exists in three triune persons. We are not saying that these lowercase g gods are lesser gods, as in polytheism. That's not what Psalm 82, I believe, is teaching. I think it's telling you there is the one chief, supreme, spiritual being, and he stands above all other beings that exist in heaven and on earth. And one of them has all authority in heaven and on earth. And typically, throughout the Bible, very rarely does he stand. Typically, he's seated on his throne seated as he's reigning and ruling, but here in verse 1, he stands. Who stands in the courtroom? 
the judge? No, no, no. The accuser. Do you get the scene now? The setting? There is a God who reigns and rules over heaven and earth, and he is about to stand and he is about to make his accusation, his charge. So, on point one, some of you, you may not be a Christian, or you may wonder sometimes if you are a Christian, when you look around the world and we ask, is there really a judge? How do we determine the worth and the value of little girls? Or as verse 2 and 3 will make clear, those who are weak. By looking around the world, we do not find the answer of the value and the worth of little girls. One report that I've read estimates that for every 200 reports of rape of little women, only three of them will actually go to trial. If you look at our justice system in the world, you would say little girls are not worth very much. The fact is that one in four women and one in six men will experience some kind of sexual abuse before the age of 18, and this should break your heart. Thankfully, as a society, pedophilia is now regarded as one of the most dreadful crimes, even among prisoners in the prisons. Sex offenders are seen as the lowest of the low, like Larry Nasser. Now, you might think as a Christian or even just as an American that this is kind of basic and obvious, but I would like to point out in one of these books that brought up this case that during the Roman days of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, it was only 2,000 years ago where the answer to the question, how much is a little girl worth? And you wondering if you just looked around society and just made judgments based on how they were being treated, you would wonder, is there actually a God in heaven ruling over and are little girls worth much at all? Because you would get a number of answers. Well, if she was free, she might have been a baby that was salvaged from the rubbish heap because she was thrown away and unwanted just because she was a girl. If a slave, trade got, slave trader got to her first, then you would have to pay them perhaps eight months' wages to own her as a slave. And once she was your property, here's a quote from a well-known historian, it is accepted that every master is entitled to use his slave as he desires in the Roman Empire. So I ask you, according to 2,000 years ago, the everyday, just ordinary look around you sort of observation. How much is a little girl worth? It might depend on whatever the going rate was for the pay-as-you-go prostitution system. Kyle Harper, well-known historian, says that prostitution of young girls was a dominant institution that brought the flourishing to the economy and was integral to the moral economy of the world in the days of Christ. It happened in the middle of the day. So if we answer this question just based on society, then we could take a trip 2,000 years ago to the nearest brothel, and they would have been everywhere, and we would have seen that it might only cost you the same cost as a loaf of bread. Is there a judge seated on his throne? Are little girls worth anything? That's the question. Psalm 82 gives us the answer. There is a judge. There is one who rules. He will hold those who are abusing the weak, the needy, the innocent children, he will hold them account. And thankfully, our psalm gives us just that point in verses 2 through 5. Do you follow along as I read verses 2 through 5 as we see that there is not just a judge in the heavens, 
But we have a judge in the heavens that determines the worth of little girls and all of the humans on the earth. So the setting in verse 1 is that Elohim, the supreme ruler of the heavens, he has taken his place. He has stood up in the divine council and in the midst of all the other spiritual beings, he is holding them to account. And he says to them, the only time that this ever appears in all of the Psalms, how long? On the lips of God. For those of you that have been following this sermon series, what are we, 83rd sermon in this sermon series as we span back the last couple years? Have you heard God's people cry out, how long? Dozens of times by now. This is the one and only time that God says, how long? He's flipping the script. He's standing up and saying, no, no, I have a question for you. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Point one from verse one is that there is a judge. Point two is that this judge is the one who determines the worth of little girls. But not just little girls, every human being. The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, And I believe what is happening here is he's asking these spiritual beings that they are to submit to his sovereign rule and some of them have rebelled and they have influenced the lives of men and women on the earth, kings and rulers. The people that I just explained in the Roman Empire are not just agents that are making decisions without spiritual forces or evil at play. The Bible talks about throughout this that our battle is not just with flesh and blood and just rulers and government. Our battle is against powers and principalities and demigods, which is the literal word in Latin for demons. Demigods. There is a spiritual power influencing the injustice that you see all around you. And God won't just hold the humans accountable. In Psalm 82, he's just up in the heavens. And that's why it's abstract. And he's saying, I'm going to hold everyone accountable that is committing any sort of rebellion against me. There is a judge, and he has determined the worth of little girls. And that is why he is standing up and says, I can take it no longer. How long? You, O sons of God, I will hold you in judgment. 2015, towards the end of Rachel Den Hollander's victim impact statement, she directly, and by the way, this was a 37-minute testimony in this court case, It was the last and final one of the 167 girls that were victims of Larry Nassar's abuse. The last and final, the 167th victim got up, and she, not just a victim, but now, at this point in her life, an attorney of law and a Christian, spoke to Larry Nassar's face and said, Larry, in our earliest of meetings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom And you've spoken about praying that we would forgive you. Pause. Rachel's a Christian. You might expect her in her next sentences to downplay and deny, and you're not a Christian, Larry. Who wants to say a well-known, repeated pedophile is a good member of Embassy Church? I hope none of you. But it's vital for us to grapple with this honest reality. There are those who will claim the name of Jesus Christ, 
and they will be some of the worst abusers on the planet. We were warned about this by Jesus himself when he said there will be wolves in sheep's clothing masquerading and taking advantage of innocent people. But what Den Hollander does not do is question Nasser's Christianity, though she should. She applies Christianity to his case and holds him to the standard that he says he believes in. Back to Den Hollander. Larry, the Bible that you carry is more like a stone that hangs around your neck and should help throw you into the lake to make you ever worse a child of hell for the fact that you have caused these little children to stumble. Den Hollander, if you don't know, is quoting from Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. The teaching of Jesus who said that little boys and little girls are worth a whole lot. And I'll quote, finally, this last part. Remember, point one is that there is a God who reigns and rules in the heavens. And he will stand up and defend the cause of the needy, whoever they are. And he will not tolerate injustice, whether in heaven or on earth. However you want to explain injustice and the reality of it in the world, the Bible has a two-tiered reality, heaven and earth. And they work together. And Psalm 82 is telling us that this God stands up for injustice. Den Hollander, similarly, I think in the spirit of Christ, says this to Larry, to his face. Throughout this process, Larry, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, who says that my argument against God, when I was not a Christian, was that the universe seemed to continually be cruel and unjust. But how did I ever get the idea that there was a thing such as just and unjust? Still quoting C.S. Lewis, Den Hollander says, A man does not call a line crooked unless he knows that there is a straight line. What I was comparing the universe to when I called it unjust, what was I comparing it to? End quote of C.S. Lewis. Larry, I can now call what you did an evil and wicked act because it truly was. And I know it was evil and wicked because there are straight lines. The straight line is not measured based on your perceptions or anybody else's on this earth. And this means that I can speak the truth about my abuse and not minimize it or mitigate it. I will call it evil because I know what true goodness is. Embassy Church, we've gathered together today to promote and pray for the true definition of justice. And there is one alone definition. It is the holiness of the personal God who exists as the one who reigns and rules and has given us through his word what right and wrong is. We submit to God. He is the straight line. We can know that crooked lines exist and that abuse of children is wrong because we know that the God of the universe has made all people in his image, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free. And this has revolutionized society and it's the reason why many of you today are saying, preach! whether in your hearts or with your mouths, because you've been transformed by the God of the universe who has not just spoken in Psalm 82 by saying, I will judge and hold accountable all of heaven and earth for injustice that occurs on the earth. But you, if you're a Christian today, you believe these things with all of your hearts because God has sent his son into the world to demonstrate for us what justice looks like in human flesh. Point one, there is a judge. He reigns and rules over all of heaven and earth. 
Point two, he has determined that he will stand up for the worth of every human being and every little girl. Point three, what is their worth? Everything. Verses six, seven, and eight in Psalm 82. Give us no longer the accusation At this point, there's even discussion as to whether or not we should understand that there are two different persons in this courtroom scene. There is the judge who is seated, and then there is the accusing attorney that is making the accusation. And if you think that's strange, just read Psalm 110 verse 1, where there's this idea of the Lord Yahweh speaking to another Lord, Adonai, and there's talking to one another in the Psalms. And the earliest Christians read Psalm 110, and over 20 different times quote that to say, The Father is Yahweh, and Adonai is Jesus Christ. And for that, I want to recommend that you read that Jesus Christ is in verse 1, taking his stand and saying, I will hold the world account. And verse 6 and 7 is the Father who's seated on the throne saying, and here is my sentence. I have said, you are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, I want to be aware of the idea for you. I want you to be aware of the idea that some interpret this passage differently than the way I've been teaching it to you today. And they might love Jesus and believe the gospel, and you can give them a big Christian hug and kiss. You don't have to divide over Psalm 82. I don't believe so. The alternative explanation is that God should just be ruler And he's talking about earthly judges throughout the whole psalm. I don't think it makes sense of verses 6 and 7. And that's part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason I don't hold that view. Jesus Christ, in just a moment, we will see in John chapter 10, confirms what I think I'm teaching to you now, which is that these lowercase g gods that are referred to in verse 1 and here again in verse 6 are spiritual beings in this heavenly council. So here's, here's the idea. Fallen angels in heaven are being held accountable by the accusing attorney, and that's what has been said in verses 2 through 5. Then in verse 6, the judge speaks and gives the sentence and says, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High, all of you. And the word gods, again, is the same word that was in verse 1, Elohim. You're spiritual beings in the heavens, okay? Nevertheless, even though you're spiritual beings, you will die like men and any other human prince or ruler. Do you see how it makes more sense to read them as spiritual beings, considering their sentence is to be a human death? And if you've read your Bible well enough, you'll know that the book of Revelation will say that the fallen angels and Satan himself will experience the second death, just like all those who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. So that's my reading here. This is the judgment from the Father on the throne saying, You are going to be judged, and you will experience the same second death that the humans on earth will experience for their injustice. So then the final verse in verse 8 is a prayer. So then arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. Third and finally, as we link our text with the judge's final decision, I want to read to you a little section from the Den Hollander statement. It's the last words she says. And this time she stops talking to Larry Nasser and she turns her attention to the judge. How much is a little girl worth? That's the question. Here's her exact words. Judge, I plead with you 
as you deliberate on what sentence that you will give Larry. I think she was in tears too. Send a message that these victims are worth everything. I plead with you. Impose the very maximum sentence under this plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. Praise God that in 2015, that judge would impose multiple prison sentences between 40 and 175 years in addition to an already established 60-year sentence. And the judge told Larry Nasser, I just signed your death warrant. The question was asked, how much are they worth? The answer was given. These girls, these victims, these survivors, the vulnerable of the earth, the people that Psalm 82 is talking about in verses 2 to 5, they are worth everything. And the reason that we know that they are worth everything is not because of society. It's not because of what you think or the intuitions of your heart. It is because of the solid, straight-line standard that has never changed yesterday, today, and forever. The judge who rules over all has revealed to us what true justice is, and he's done it supremely by sending his son. This is the very reason why in the Gospel of John, before we get to John 10, and if you would, I would encourage you to turn your Bible to John 10, because this will be the definitive interpretation of Psalm 82. It's from Jesus himself. I don't think you should disagree with Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament. But before you get to John 10, just realize that God has entrusted all judgment over to his son. And this has been stated in John chapter 5, verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And then as we read John 10, I want you to just retrace the steps that was read for us earlier in our service. Quinn got up here and read for us that at the Feast of Dedication, that's John 10, verse 22. And again, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, this is page 843. They're at this feast in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus goes around and makes this claim. Drop down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here's the line. I and the Father are one. If you're following the logic of Jesus, he's claiming that he is God. And if you're wondering, well, maybe that's your Christian interpretation of those words. No, that's the Jewish interpretation based on the response of these witnesses. The Jews, verse 31, picked up stones again to stone him. You just said that you and the Father are one. So they're ready to kill him because that would have been a capital offense according to their law. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not because of your works. Nobody can deny Jesus' works. You see barrels of water turned into wine. You see a little girl come back from the dead. You see a man that can't walk start walking. They can't refute his works. He clearly is different from every other human that's walking the earth today. And then, so they're not refuting the works. It's not for your good works, verse 32 says, that we're going to stone you, but it is for the words that you've said, the blasphemous words. You, you're just a man like us, fully man, but you make yourself God by the statement that I and the Father are one. 
What's Jesus going to say? How's he going to respond? And the answer, Psalm 82. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And don't get caught up that, well, the law is the first five books of the Bible, and he's quoting, I said you are gods, from Psalm 82, verse 6. Uh, Law could just be a reference to the whole Old Testament, which is what I believe is happening here. Okay, so read it again. Jesus answered them, hey, you don't know your Bible. If you'd know your Bible better, you would know that Psalm 82, verse 6 says, I said you are gods. And then Jesus comments on it and says, if he called them lowercase g gods, to whom the word of God came, and you all trust the Bible and the scriptures, the scriptures can't be broken. Are you saying the Bible's not true? Do you say of him who the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I have said, I am the true son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I am doing the works, even though you do not believe, believe my works that You may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Strangely enough, lots of Christians read this text and think that Jesus was accused of blasphemy, saying that he's God. That's pretty clear. And his response is to quote Psalm 82 to show that he's really just another man. And I just want to go like, you know, what? Why would they want to arrest him? He's doubled down on the claim that he is truly one with the Father. He is fully man and he is fully God. And he does it by quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. Because I think he's understanding that there are two persons that are at play in this courtroom scene in Psalm 82, verse 6. There is the Father who is on the throne, and the Father has given the Son all the rights to execute judgment on the world, and he sent him into the world, which is what he's already been claiming. And when he executes justice and judgment, he is executing the justice and judgment of the Father in heaven. Fully God, fully man. And therefore, when he's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, I think he's not only defending his deity by saying, your own scriptures give witness to these two persons in the divine council. Not only that, but he is indicting the Pharisees for their own injustices. You too will die if you don't repent, so believe in my works. There is a judge in heaven. He has determined the worth of little girls. And he has determined that by sending his son to die on a cross and experience the judgment that the angels in heaven and the humans on earth should receive but he took their place so that we would have no doubt about it that little girls are worth everything, even the very son of God. Do you understand that it's the Christian revolution and the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ that unleashed a change that collapsed the Roman Empire and that almost, I'm guessing, regardless of where you are at in your religious beliefs, every single one of you think Larry Nasser should pay for what he did. And the reason that you believe that is because of Christianity, because of the gospel, because of the revolution of the power of the resurrection, Jesus Christ. Or to put it very clearly, if you're a careful attention to detail kind of person, you will have noticed that Onella, when she came up here, read for us our assurance of pardon from the book of Colossians. And in the book of Colossians chapter 2, 
we are told that the gospel brings forgiveness of sins and puts to shame and triumph all the powers of heaven. Let me read it to you. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus Christ, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. And he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside when he nailed it to the cross. And by nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame and triumphing over them in him. The justice of God is demonstrated on the cross of Christ when Jesus, the innocent one, takes the place of the guilty. The judge becomes judged, friends. The crazy story of the Bible is that there's not just a judge who rules on a throne, but there is the one who executes justice by being judged on a cross so that you and I as humans could repent of those sins have new hearts, have those sins and those records washed away, become new people who love little girls and hate with all of our heart any abuse to any human, regardless of gender, age. And so I would want to argue that Psalm 82 teaches us there's a judge and that judge rules over heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all of the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and I will be with you to the end of the age. The Father has given the Son all authority in heaven and on earth and so therefore, Embassy Church, Psalm 82, in a strange series of texts and ways leads us ultimately to our mission. We should promote and pray for and establish justice in our church, in our homes. And it should be in aligned with the teachings of Jesus as we obey and bow down to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as we get baptized into his name, as we execute justice by bringing people into church membership, as we execute justice when we remove people in church discipline. All of these things is us looking at the scriptures and then looking at our church and looking at the world and prophetically declaring this is what's right based on the authority of Jesus Christ. And so whatever those issues might be in the world, I pray that in your own personal life and in your understanding of what's happening in human history, you will have great confidence and you will have great hope knowing that he still reigns and rules and that he has defeated all the powers in heaven and all the powers on earth on the cross, and that there is a day coming when he will make all things new. And so I would encourage you to align yourself with him now. Repent of sin. Put your faith and trust in the gospel. Realize that you have contributed to some of these injustices. You too are a guilty party, and you deserve the sentence of death, and it's the very reason you will die one day. So very simply, are you ready to die? Even the angels in heaven, supernatural beings will experience death. He will not sweep any injustice under the rug. It will either be nailed to the cross or put to death in the second death. You can be sure of it. Are you a victim of any kind of injustice? I would encourage you to take hope that those atrocities will not be overlooked by the sovereign Lord who reigns and rules. 
nailed to the cross and forgiveness given to your abuser? Or the ultimate wrath of God poured out in the second death? So, Embassy Church, there's a lot here. There's a lot to study and glean. But I hope that whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the message is very, very simple. We know that there is an ultimate good. There is the ability for us as humans to make decisions and determinations of what's right and wrong. There is a straight line. And when you see a crooked line, you can know. Yeah, that's crooked. And guess what? It's not me. I'm not the straight line. It's not you. It's not this church. It's Jesus Christ. So let's bow before him. Let's submit our lives to him. Either for the first time today or just again for another week on this Lord's Day. Let's do that now as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come in the name of Jesus because we know that we sinners have been guilty of so many terrible things in our lives. And if we've not committed any terrible sins yet, then it's possible we're just not old enough. And Lord, we want to just acknowledge that this curse of sin, it pervades every human heart and it needs to be put to death. It needs to die now. And we just thank you and we rejoice that through faith and repentance, we can die to sin today. We can die to sin in every one of our baptism testimonies. And we want to just pray that that would happen again and again in the life of our church. That we would be praying for and promoting justice by the fact that we're calling people to discipleship to the one true straight line, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for those that are in need of comfort, for the feelings of, of being a victim of, of some kind of abuse or injustice. We pray for even just the way that we intake the uh, onslaught of bad news after bad news, day after day, whether in just personal life and family, but the, the global world that we have access to at our fingertips. God, help us. Help us to maintain faith that you do reign and you do rule and you are working. And God, give us faith to see what our eyes sometimes struggle to see as we look out in society. So thank you for Psalm 82. Thank you for your sovereign rule over heaven and earth and the interplay that happens between these two realities. And we want to ask that you would uh, embolden us to believe that there's a whole lot more going on than just what meets the eye in every instance of our lives on the earth. Help us to sense your spirit now guiding us to worship and, and delight in the truths of your word and the glory of your son as we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.